Well, we've been focusing last Sunday and today and the following two Sundays uh, with our really light spot and a group of people who have been in trouble because they have disobeyed God. And yet God in his love and his mercy has showed that he still loves them. And the promises that he has made to them are true despite the unfaithfulness of the people. But there are consequences for disobedience and therefore they had to go to exile. But then God brings prophets like Jeremiah who says that the times of exiles is going to be only for 70 years and then you're going to go back to your homeland and try to recalibrate your journey with God. The God who has promised you the God who has kept his covenant and the God who is going to fulfill what he said. So last Sunday we focused mainly on chapter 1 and chapter 2. I was going to start with a quiz this today just to check you whether you have read the names of chapter 2 and how many people there are in each group, but I'm not going to do that. I changed my mind. I was very tempted actually. Um, But today we're going to be focusing mainly on chapter 3 onwards. Actually, the book of Ezra in itself, it divides itself in two parts. You've got Ezra from chapter 1 to chapter 6 when he talks actually about the the people from exile moving to Jerusalem. And then from Ezra chapter 7 onwards is the ministry of the scribe himself, Ezra. And then we're going to be talking next Sunday more, focusing more on on the character and the characteristics of Ezra as a leader. So, um, here we've got this group of people who have moved on now. They've traveled for 900 miles. It's taken them a good four months. I've calculated that it's 7.5 miles a day. It's not bad, but can you imagine... 42,000 people on this big group of convoy traveling because God had stirred their hearts. It's amazing. Can you imagine being on the hillside and looking at this convoy of people going and then you're saying, what are they doing? But they're convinced in their hearts that God is going to keep his promises. And therefore, they see themselves as being part of this picture. And therefore, they're heading to Jerusalem. And they've got this. And it's not only the people, but it's the stuff that they've accumulated through the years. It's the stuff that they've taken also also in order to build the temple. Because that's their task. That's their focus. It's the building of the temple. And I love the way chapter 3 starts. Unity for this group of people becomes a reality. It's not only theoretical. It's not only something that they aspire to. But it's a real thing. They come together as one man 
in Jerusalem. Yes, they do come from different tribes. Yes, they've got different tasks. Yes, they've got different kinds of offerings to give towards the temple. But it's important that they come one as one in Jerusalem. So this unity is so important because actually God has called them to a task which, as we know now because we know the history, it's not easy. They have to come and be united because actually unity is part of this identity that God is their God and they as a group are their people. And you can see that throughout the chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and onwards that, that there are elements how they express this unity. You know, they've got certain celebrations, certain feasts in their calendar that you know, they, they, they're very passionate about. And actually, it's part of their identity. The Feast of the Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of the Tabernacle. And as we're going to see towards the end of this sermon, they're going to be celebrating the Passover. And all of this, they had kind of a memory attached to them showing how faithful God has been to them day in, day out. But unity also was important because they were being, they've been given this task. And we joked about the names last Sunday, but each of those names and roles carry a responsibility to fill this task. It's a little bit like the New Testament church. It's a little bit like when Paul talks about the body which comes with the different gifts and the hand cannot say to the leg, I don't need you. Unity is important because actually the church is God's gift to the world. And we are the ones that carry the mandate of bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to those who do not know him. Unity in diversity is important. And we can see that in our life as a community, that we are all different people. For goodness sake, you've got an Albanian as one of your ministers. This is the diversity of the body of Christ here at Cairns. But what are some other ways that we celebrate that actually God has called us as one community? And what are we going to do here for the community outside who doesn't know God? What are some of the landmarks that you can think of on top of your hand that has happened in the last 12 months as you say, oh, that was the place when we thought we were united. Can I remind you of some? It's those moments when we all gather our hearts together in the Sunday service and we pray with faith for God's healing on people. And we see God answer our prayers. I'm not going to say names, but you know what I'm talking about. It's those moments when we say, we're going to have a light factory 
everybody comes and takes part, part in the capacity that they have. And they want, because they want for Jesus to be the light of the lives of our little children, of the younger generation. It's those moments when we come and we say, actually, as a community of faith, we are going to commit to one another together this year to walk the journey of faith. I know commitment is a very difficult word, but this is what what's, is kind of included in our covenant as the body of Christ, that we do commit ourselves to love God and to love one another and love the neighbors ourselves. We commit that we want to follow Jesus through whom God has reconciled the world by his death and resurrection and in whom we continue the work of reconciliation. We commit because we know that Christ has saved us and as she reminded us that if people in Albania are convinced that Jesus, and Abby, I think, did that, is the only hope for Albania, I want for us to be the same thing to the UK. I want to say Jesus is the only hope for Bristol. So it's this ministry of reconciliation that has been given to us as a community of faith by God. We commit ourselves to proclaim Jesus as Savior and Lord, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, to bring good news to the poor, to set free the oppressed, and to be a people of peace. This is one of those moments where I believe God really unites us, focuses us, reignites the flame in us for the year coming. And actually, the word commitment is very difficult. Because we are all busy people. The word commitment is also very threatening because we say, well, I can't stick to every word that I've said there. Well, look at the people of Israel. And what I prayed last week, I really meant it, that as a church of God, we've got it better off because we've got Jesus, we've got the Holy Spirit, and grace is much more accessible for the New Testament believers. It wasn't that it wasn't accessible there, because as you can see in verse 2 of chapter 3, they did something very interesting. When the people were united, they had not been dispersed yet, they came to this place of saying, actually, God has called us. He has stirred us up to come and build up this temple. We are coming here, but we're coming to Jerusalem, not on our own agenda. We're coming to Jerusalem, and we're going to build God's temple on God's terms. And where do we start? At the altar. Why is the altar so crucial. Why is the altar so important for a life of a spiritual community? Because it's the only place where people can meet God. It's the only place where they can come and say, God, I have messed up. I have been unfaithful to your promises and your covenant and you in your faithfulness have kept me and have brought me to Jerusalem. 
And here I stand now, not as a loser, but as a person who have encountered you, who have encountered your forgiveness. And here I want to make a fresh start, not because you are God of one chance only, but because you're God of second chances, of opportunities to reconcile with you. And that's why we remember him, what he has done every Sunday that we break bread and we drink from the juice. Because actually, true, the words of those, they're very hard and we're going to deal with the second part of the covenant wording next Sunday. But let's not forget, we are not doing this on our own strength. We're doing them on the strength that Jesus gives to us and the grace that is there available for us. But it has to start with the altar. It has to start with sacrifice. It has to start with repentance. It has to start with rededication. But let's not leave it there, folks. It has to start with accepting that God has forgiven you and you move on. So it's not that unity becomes reality. It's not that an altar is built. But you see in chapter 3 that the praise and the worship of people is established. You see people who, who gave a great shout of praise. And actually, you see that there are two groups of people there. One group of people who looks back and he says, in my time, we used to sing hymns, and you don't sing them now, and you're missing out. And then you see a group of people say, I know you used to sing hymns, but building this temple is well enough for us, and we're going to sing new songs. And I think this is the mingle of worship, that we do look back nostalgically in the past of what God has done. But let's not stay in the past. Let's get excited that actually God has brought us here to build the temple And we're going to be joyful because this is the task that God has entrusted these people. And therefore, they're going to be praising God. One thing is important. That in the midst of nostalgia and joy, the noise was enormous. Wouldn't that be awesome? No grumpy, but they just remembered the time when they was the temple was in its high days and saying, Whoa, we are missing out God's glory, God's presence. And then you had a group of people who said, Do you remember 70 years in exile? God kept us safe, He kept His promises. We are here. Let's move on with the task. We are happy. It is valid. It's fine. It's good. It's, it's brilliant. 
And I think, again, as I said, what is the most astonishing is that the noise was so loud that the neighboring cities, villages, heard it. And then we read in chapters 4, 5, and 6 that actually coming back to Jerusalem is challenging. Staying on the task of building the temple, which we read in chapter 1, verse 3, that was the initial task that people, well, the remnant people went back to Jerusalem that there were challenges on staying on track. The first challenge that they had to face in chapter 4 was compromise. There was a group of people that they found there that basically, legitimately, they were worshipping the gods of Israel, but then they had done other allegiance and stuff, and the Jews had been married with them, and the center of this whole thing was Samaria, and that's why we've got the Samaritans, and then that's why we've got the grudges of the Samaritans of the New Testament when Jesus is pointing out. It starts all here. And they want to help to build up the temple. And these guys say, it's very kind of you, but no thank you. No compromise. And I just wonder how we deal with compromise as a church of God in this day and age? What are the things that we say that these are the true, true features of the church of God and we are not going to move from that? And these are the things that are negotiable. And I just want to, 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 to throw the challenge there that sometimes... We, pre- we are prepared not to pay the price and go for the negotiables than pay the price of no compromise. Have a, word, have a look at the church history. It's not only our generation, but have a look in the last 300, have a look in the last 500 years what has happened. And you can see the moments where the church has made compromises and has moved on, stayed away, forgot its old ways, lost the bearings, call it whatever you want. The other thing that they face there, which is very fair, is opposition. So why would they face opposition? And why would the work of the rebuilding of the temple be put on hold for 16 years? When God has stirred up their hearts to go and rebuild the temple, well, the devil never stops. And I think this is what we need to get our heads around. I don't want to give the devil the cred- more credit that belongs to him, but we need to be aware that wherever there is a task that is given by God to his people to fulfill, He is going to be around to stick his nose in and stop it 
prevent it. Try to find things to not make it through. Don't lose heart because God's promises are true and they never go unfulfilled. But we've got an enemy. And sometimes opposition is from the outside, the neighborings, countries, as it's in this case. And sometimes opposition is from inside. And therefore, we need people, prophets like Haggai that you read in chapter 5 and 6, that is telling them, guys, you have lost track of the task, the original task that you came here to build the temples. You have come all the way, 900 miles. You have settled in Jerusalem and in the surroundings. And all you have done is you have focused in your own houses and forgotten that actually it is the temple you've come here to build. So the question that I've got is, if we believe that God has really united us as a community of faith and we are all in a journey to do God's will here, who are the Haggai's in our congregation that are passionate about God's glory and will point us out there despite of the opposition, despite of apathy, despite of inertia, despite of anything. And are we aware of that? Do we want Haggai's? Because prophets like Haggai's, have a look, have a read today, and the whole, it's a very short book. It's not a comfortable prophet. And the last thing that I want to share today is that it is challenging to stay on track. But let's not forget what the Israelites sang in chapter 3. For the Lord is good and his love for Israel endures forever. And then the end of chapter 6 is the Passover which actually leads us straight to the communion. Why do people in such an intense life trying to build the community of faith in Jerusalem have lost track and they get reminded and they said, well, one of the feasts that we can identify as the Jews is the Passover. And it's not a legend. It's a story that they were commanded to speak and to talk about generation after generations from the time it happened and onwards. It's a story to remind them that actually they were in exile in Egypt. And God, with his hand, brought them out. We're going to study Exodus in um, March, February and March. So we're going to look into that. But it's, it's, do, you, do you see the picture here? From exile to deliverance. From exile to Jerusalem to deliverance. And the only way that they find that they can celebrate this is Passover. Let's remember God's faithfulness to us. 
Let's remember that we were unfaithful and yet God delivered us, opened up the Red Sea, brought us all the way here. And here we are in exile again that we've come out of and we still remember in the midst of our unfaithfulness, Passover is important. We're going to take communion together. And again, I come back to that point of the altar. Why is the altar important? Because it's the only place that keeps us close to God and keeps us on track with God. Why the altar? Why is this? Because this is where we celebrate that this is where God has called us to be his people. And we cannot do it in our own strength, but only because of what Jesus has done for us.